Hi folks, I'm Alan Wharton. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 2nd of March 2011. For newcomers, you should look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website and help yourself to the massive uh, audios that are up there for download. There's, I think there's over a thousand of them now. And hopefully you'll, you'll find that the big system in which you're born into, this bewildering system, of authority and, and layers and layers and layers of authorities of all kinds really is a, a one big gigantic system that knows exactly where it's being is, is going and where it's taking us and how we're basically kept in the dark at the bottom level. We're mushrooms. You're kept in the dark and you're fed lots of uh, bovine fecal matter. And that's good enough for the general public not to cause any troubles for those who rule the world. And people do certainly do rule the world and have for a long time, in fact. So while you're in the websites, remember that you're the audience to bring me to you. I don't bring on advertisers as guests, and uh, when they do come on, most shows they pay to get on, and uh, and they also pay uh, the host as well. And that's how most folk make their cash on on Patriot Radio stations. But I don't do it that way because, and it's okay for those who do, who've got families and all the rest of it. But uh, this is not a business, and um, and it's it's more educational too. It's not show business either, I should say. And um, hopefully you get a lot out of it. So please support me. It's up to you if you want to hear the stuff or not. And you can do so by buying the books and the discs that I have for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And remember, the ads you hear on the show are paid by advertisers directly to RBN to broadcast the station. And that pays for their staff and their equipment and their bills. So help me out with mine. From the U.S. to Canada, you can order using a personal check. You can also use uh, an international postal money order from your post office. You can use cash, send cash, or you can use PayPal. You go into the com site, cuttingthroughmedics.com, and use the PayPal button, uh, give the donation, and follow it with an email with your name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, you can use Western Union. You can use MoneyGram. You can send cash as well, and you can use PayPal once again to order just use the donation button, follow it with an email, with your name, address, and order. And remember, straight donations, too, are certainly welcome because they, they trickle in once in a while, and there's never anywhere near enough. But that's the, the age we live in. People have been taught through the Internet that everything's for free. And it's so free that they give all their data out to everyone who then sells it. So it's certainly very profitable, all this free information for those who own the net systems. And uh, it helps the NSA, of course, and basically the world government to monitor every single person to see who's going to be a problem down the road. Most folk are not a problem, never will be. They're very predictable. They're already predictable, in fact. And I've gone through the, the Pentagon articles where they have a virtual you updated daily with all the information that you willingly, happily give out to all your supposed friends, most of whom are probably robots or at least computers or software. However, you cannot help those who are classified as the dead and really, in all ages, you'll find that even in old religious books, there's a classification of people called the dead. 
and you cannot help the dead. Um, you find it in masonry too, they talk about the dead. Pike said they're nothing but um, meat on the table, a uh, stake on the table, beasts of burden by choice and consent. They will not use their own initiative, their own mentality, their own brain power. They prefer to be led and guided quite happily as sheep. And they're always used by those who are more aggressive. And there's lots of them, believe you me, at the top. Unfortunately, in a monetary system, it's at the ideal system for the psychopaths to get up and achieve power. They're addicted to power, and they get up through the collar and tie route, and they get up on top, and then, of course, they lord it over you, like all tyrants always do. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I've talked many times about basically eugenics and the so-called characters behind the eugenic societies that really took off after Darwin came out and talked about evolution. And evolution itself was a necessity for the role of society to get out too. They backed Darwin. In fact, they really, even though they knew he stole most of Wallace's material, uh, they pushed Darwin to the fore because he was a higher Freemason than the rest of them. So he got the credit for pushing out this new religion that, that everything simply evolved by itself. And therefore, if things evolved, then they would keep evolving. And they talked about the great leap forward and things would just jump and all the rest of it. And different schools of thought came out and opposed each other and combined sometimes and split up again to different factions. However, it's never died away. And for those in power who are obsessed with evolution, uh, because, see, evolution to them mean, is, is a way of trying to, to create the perfect kind of human beings for a species uh, of, of uh, plantation workers. That's really what it is. They'll give them less trouble. And every so often, these scientists live on massive grants of your tax money and, and foundation money and so on. Uh, put out their papers, must publish or perish, that's what they call it in, in these scientific research facilities. Because if they don't publish something every year, uh, the funding stops coming in. And so they've got to keep churning out materials. Often it's rehashed material with a, a new spin or a possibility and a new theory. And, and the theory really is somebody's guess. That's what a theory is, it's a guess. So really, anybody's guess is as good as anybody else's unless someone in higher authority okays it in science, then it's a better guess, or it's the authorized guess. But they're, they're determined through what they're now calling neuroscience, and they've got neuroethics and, and bioethicists and all the rest of it, all these people combine to do with psychology and the physiology of the brain uh, coming together to try to predict people's behavior. Very important to run a society because every tyrant under the, 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 the sun has had to uh, employ henchmen, basically, armies and henchmen and torturers to keep everybody living in a fearful state. So this article here is one of the latest ones, and it's about neuroscience. And it says, uh, Nobel intent, not no, noble as in nobility, but Nobel, Peace Prize and all that kind of stuff, because they cut brains into pieces, I guess. Anyway, it says here, uh, thought crime, the ethics of neuroscience and criminality. And this is a, a fan, obviously, uh, who probably gives handouts to all the papers 
on this kind of stuff. One of the most thought-provoking sessions I attended at the AAAS, I guess that's Alcoholics of Science or something, was Nature, Nurture, and Antisocial Behavior, uh, Biological and Biosocial Research on Crime. The three talks encompassed uh, neurocognition, psychobiology, and a range of ethical issues that would make your brains uh, spin if you thought about them hard enough. The topic has great potential for controversy, and it would be easy to interpret some of the data presented as an argument against free will. Because you see, what they try to do is, and one of the big theories out there has been out for a while, is that whatever comes out of your mouth or your, or your head uh, is really simply the end product of all these millions of cells comprising of your body battling with each other for supremacy. No, no kidding. Yeah. So you're really a whole universe within yourself, all battling with each other, all these little planets, these little cells. Uh, and so whatever comes out really is just a product, end product of all this battling going on. It says, in some ways, however, I think it illustrates the mistake of thinking of nature and nurture as separate, when in reality the interplay between genetics and environment are inseparable, especially when it comes to criminal activity. So he's, a, he's all gung-ho for the belief that it's an hereditary type thing and can be explained by chopping up brains and stuff like that. Then he goes, antisocial behavior on the brain. The University of Pennsylvania's Adrian Rain gave an excellent overview of neurocriminology, which I'll attempt to do justice. Several areas of the brain have been shown to be implicated with antisocial personality disorder. They call it ASPD, commonly known as psychopathy or sociopathy. The frontal cortex is a large part of your brain that is responsible for higher reasoning and behavioral traits and is one of the areas that has been looked at. It's smaller than normal in an individual with ASPD, although there's a difference in crime rates between men and women. 77% of that difference goes away once you control uh, for frontal cortex volume. The love percentages, again, statistics and stuff like that, because they help to rationalize nonsense. Anyway, dysfunctional or abnormalities in other brain regions have also been associated with higher rates of crime and ASPD. Uh, the septum pellucidum is a region of brain tissue that separates the brain's fluid-filled spaces called ventricles. Are you impressed already? It sounds very scientific, eh? That's supposed to impress you. During fetal development, there's an opening inside the tissue that usually closes up within the first few months after birth. Individuals for whom this doesn't happen have higher rates of arrest and conviction and score higher for ASPD. So they've got to get a physical cause, you understand, in this scientific dictatorship living under for everything that happens. It's got to be reasoned and through science. Again, very Darwinistic. And, and that's all there is too. A person really is a compilation of your genetic uh, hereditary condition and uh, your environment that you're brought up in and so on and so on. And everything, they, they must be explained to them. Very and explainable, I should say. A key center of emotional activity in the brain, the amygdala, is another important region. A study comparing the ASPD and in normal brains found deformations and a significant reduction in volume in the ASPD cohort. These were centered on the bisolateral nucleus, which is responsible for fear conditioning. Right? This suggests that one possible source of differences, or one of several interweaving mechanisms, is that Antisocial personality disorder affected individuals don't form the same sort of response to fear as normal people. Now, now you can really go over this and, and, and really t- cut it apart a thousand pieces, even more than they'll chop up brains. But really, uh, when you look at the last part there, what are they looking for? That means that good people are living in fear. <laughs> Do you understand that? Good people who don't cause trouble, who don't cause any crime, no problems to governments or authorities or whatever, 
are, are living in a state of fear, right? Obviously. So the ones who are not living in a state of fear, they're saying, cause a crime. Which makes no sense again, because you see, if again, you've got a whole bunch of guys, young guys, put them into the military, taught them to kill people, sent them abroad for a paycheck to slaughter folk. They will do it, they'll get medals and all the rest of it, but they'll still, be, they'll still say they have normal brains. You see what I'm saying? Utter rubbish. Anyway, this is one study uh, that showed that this assessment assessed autonomic fear conditioning in three-year-olds is done with a skin conductance test. So you, you put it on, it, 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 it tests the skin's conductance. And uh, so they, they tested it on children. Then and 20 years later, they, they tested it on a bunch of children. They couldn't find the, all of the, the study group. It says 137 of those 23-year-olds had criminal records. The remaining 274 had not been in trouble with the law, or had, yeah, had not been. Looking at the data from 20 years ago, the criminal offenders all showed much poorer fear conditioning. So, so they were not living in a state of fear like the rest of society, I guess. And again, too, it all depends where you brought, did that study from, like the East End of London, very poor area, or parts of Glasgow, say. And uh, you, you'd find out, again, you'd find more. Because when you're living in a survival situation, believe you me, you don't really care much about the basic laws. And apart from that, there's so many laws on youngsters today, too. It's just astonishing because the policing has all completely changed. Completely changed. So I'll, I'll leave this rotten article up, up on my sites at the end of the show for you had to have a good laugh at for, for those who are not too swayed by the, the, the wonderful scientific terms. It's meant to say, ooh, and ah, whoa, it's so scientific. And, and reality, it's a rehash and rehashes of stuff they've been doing for the last hundred years. But that's what, they, that's what they're doing. They want a good society that's well-behaved and terrified. And then you'll have a normal brain. They also mentioned too that white collar crime has a thicker, con- a thicker cortex that gives them an edge on seeing opportunities. So you see, if you're wealthy in the whole bit and you rip off millions of people through banking, whatever, it's, not, it's a naughty thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's because you've got a thicker cortex, so they claim. Uh, and again, that's a maybe, of course, as well. But uh, it's, it's quite something else to watch their theories. And all these people are getting so much money. They live high on the hog, you know on all this, this pablum. It's just astonishing. Now, the U.S. is still pushing this um, national health service system, which is bare bones, because, you see, every country that signed the United Nations Charter and the World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nations, they all agreed to that everyone across the world was, should be um, have access to the most basic health care. And I said basic, you see, which means primitive, by the way, if you didn't know that. And um, that's what they want to bring into the States. Meanwhile, Britain's been through the whole scenario of, of having a, soci- a system which did work until they changed it all and made too many chiefs and not enough Indians to run the hospitals and the wards. And, of course, uh, very greedy ones too. And then they did, went a step higher and tried to give incentives to CEOs to run the hospitals who cut corners everywhere to get a higher paycheck. So corruption ruled and corruption brought down the hospital system and that's what happens uh, when you put too much uh, of the scientific socialists in power. Anyway, uh, in Britain, um, they're, they're actually combining hospitals now and they've got so many different ways to finance the hospitals, including private insurance companies. And this report here's what Nicholson expects that companies will run more national health service hospitals until you'll have chains of these guys running chains of them, just like chain stores, 
uh, there'll be corporations running all of it. But it's interesting when you go into the writings of Jack uh, Attali, for instance, who talks about the future in his last book. He actually, and he's up at the United Nations, of course, and he mentioned the fact that in the future, insurance companies will have a major role in dealing with uh, not just medicine, but a whole range of societal topics. They'll be the kind of bosses, how much will get spent on things. And I think that's the way they're going to go. So I'll put this link up tonight as well, and you can go through it. They're talking about um, how they're going to, hospitals can survive and... Um, merging a whole bunch of them and all the rest of it. But really, ultimately, it's insurance companies which are going to take over and and run uh, chains of them, just like Walmart chains. Back with more after this break. Folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. Contrasting the first article I mentioned about thought crime and the ethics of neuroscience and criminality, where basically they're saying that, that those who have less fear recognition uh, end up being criminals. And I mentioned, too, the fact that, well, we can do the same with soldiers. We can train thousands of, them of normal folk, apparently, to go off and slaughter folk for a paycheck in the most brutal, horrible way. If that was done in civil society back home, they would be criminals. So it all depends on on, on authority authorising them to go out and slaughter. So it makes a absolute nonsense of it. And here's an article here about police, and it says, David Gilberson, why are police so rude? And it says, because they're trained to be. Does that mean they're psychopaths too? Have they opened up their brain skulls recently and done all these tests on them? I wonder. See, you can make anybody into anything if you want to. This is last week the Independent Police Complaints Commission published complaint statistics for 2009 to 2010 and for senior officers, indeed for the public at large, they make uncomfortable reading. For the second successive year, the number of complaints increased by 8% to record levels of almost 58,400. But within that headline figure, there are trends that should give us all pause for thought. Now, these are folk who put complaints in and, and, and chanced it, took chances. This is in Britain, but uh, they took chances uh, because there's an awful lot of retribution if you go against the cops, believe you me. Yeah. This is almost 50% of all allegations related to rudeness, uh, incivility, and neglect of duty. And the cops, too, they have shows that now, just like the cops in, in the U.S., the cop shows, and they curse and they swear at the, at the civilians, you know. They call them civilians, too. And it says... Um, even the interim chair of the IPCC, Len Jackson, felt compelled to comment that the number of rude and late complaints will require forces to develop an open dialogue with the public, and that's Whitehall code for this has got to change. Well, it won't change, you see, because this generation has been uh, brought up on video games and, and in, a, in a system of moral relativity where they can do what they want, basically, nothing's wrong. And once you get that black uniform, and they, bec- they, they become part of the game, and it's, they go hunting the public. That's what they do. They hunt the public. It says, no one who cares about the maintenance of law and order in this country could view these figures with anything but concern. They expose worrying issues that we ignore at our peril. It's not a trivial point of manners, but a reflection of the extent to which policing has changed for the worse in this country over the past 25 years. 
He says, I witnessed these changes as, as they began in the late 80s and as they accelerated over the 90s in the past decade. For 35 years, until I retired in 2001, I served in two forces and at the Home Office at every rank from beat uh, PC to Deputy Assistant Commissioner and Her Majesty's Assistant Inspector of Constabulary. I believe that we are, we are now feeling the delayed impact of more than two decades of poor decision-making in policing. It says, once upon a time, the general public could confidently expect courtesy from the local constabulary, particularly in the years following the Second World War, an easy accommodation emerged, which has its roots in the continuing respect for authority figures. And that's being fearful of authority, of course, and makes you a good citizen. That was the prevailing attitude of the time, and recognition of the fact that civil society needed effective policing as crime rates soared. And I don't know why it was sore after the war. They don't tell you, of course, and I know, I know why, of course, we're destroying the culture even back then. This contract with the public lasted until the early 90s when under the dual pressure of economic and social change, a new generation of chief constables and commissioners who saw policing as a business rather than a vocation based upon service decided that things had to change. The new policing enthusiastically supported by successive home secretaries uh, was about targets response times and measurable performance lifted straight from the MBA syllabuses of the best universities. And that's what's true. They try to use a business mode into policing. Uh, same as the hospitals. Beat patrols on, on foot uniform were not part of this brave new world unless effectiveness could be measured and converted into a bottom line cost. It was of no use and had to be scrapped. Police discretion was submerged under a tsunami of directions, guidelines, and data gathering. I'd also mention quotas as well, because every police force in the world now uses quotas, so many tickets and so on. And I've read some on the air where mayors in, in the U.S. have actually, and New York especially, have given the, the, the data out there. All the money that's gathered from the tickets, he says, is mine. He says, what you do at the weekends is up to you. But, but it's, tickets are nothing. Then 9-11 happened, and it was decided that the police service was on the front line on the war on terror. Almost overnight, we all changed from citizens to suspects. Terrorism legislation and spurious officer safety policies led to the militarization of policing. And that's what it is. It's militarization of policing. Look at the uniforms, for God's sake. And the greatest change in attitude that had taken place for a century. Police officers, the majority quite young, the average age of an operational police constable is under 24, have been trained to believe that they are continually under, under physical threat and must therefore be continually on their guard. It's clear that a significant minority of officers see the public as their enemy and as a potential hazard to be dealt with aggressively. There's no doubt that standards of behaviour and civility across the whole of Britain have changed for the worst over the past quarter century. Courtesy and good behaviour have been abandoned by many in our modern me society. Which, of course, is what Bertrand Russell said, they bring in the me generation. Uh, Narcissists and hedonists. It is clear that a significant minority of officers see the public as their enemy. So remember that part. It says the police are products of that society. They attend the same schools, live in the same communities, and have the same attitudes and prejudices as their best and the worst of us. But police officers should be held to a different standard of behavior. This change in attitude has to be set alongside the simultaneous withdrawal from day-to-day street patrolling that's taken place. Then it goes on about the way that they're trained to be suspicious and always on guard, and have to be very authoritarian with the people who must be kept fearful, of course. Not like the psychopaths out there. Back with more after this break.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're still back here cutting through the matrix and here's another article too to show you what happens in the 21st century, how uh, trendy we are. This is, I've read this before but it's a minimum wage bill amendment act. It's a bill uh, 29 going through Britain right now and other countries in Europe are going to the same thing that they're all amalgamated, they're destroying the minimum wage, anybody can be paid. It says, it says, a bill, this is a reading from it, a bill to enable the national minimum wage to be varied to reflect local labor market conditions and for connected purposes. Very explicit, right? Be it, be it enacted by the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty. This is the 21st century. By and with the advice and consent of the Lords Spiritual and Temporal and Commons in this present Parliament assembled and by the authority of the same as follows. Low Pay Commission Inquiry. That's for the commoners, you see, the peasants. The Low Pay Commission must consider and take evidence on the availability of employment opportunities and the impact of the national minimum wage on job creation and access to employment in all travel-to-work areas where the average level of unemployment in the preceding year has been above the national average and must consider in the light of that assessment whether to recommend that the minimum wage in any, any such area should be set at a level below the national minimum wage. And then it goes on and on and on with its usual uh, bureaucraties that they put out for the, the Queen. The Queen who's a figurehead, they say, but no law can get passed or revoked without her signature and uh, her authority to do so. But there you are, she's, uh, you know, spiritual and temporal lords and all the rest of it are running Britain. That's why it's in such a great state, you know, great, great condition. And then you have Ford uh, companies. I mentioned years ago the no intention of bringing out new cars for the people, and that's why the roads were going down the tubes, because they only gave you the car for a certain amount of time during an industrial era, the latter part of it, especially in the U.S., because in the U.S. you had long distances to travel to work and so on. But now that you're all getting crowded into the, into the cities, you don't have to use that under Agenda 21 and uh, the Millennium Project for Sustainable Development. So here's, here's from Ford. Ford warns electric cars may be only for the rich. Ford's chief financial officer has warned predictions of a surge in electric car sales are very ambitious as the next generation vehicles dominate the Geneva Motor Show. And it says, um, Lewis Booth of Britain raised concerns about their viability without state subsidies. Most leading car makers have unveiled new electric or hybrid models in Geneva, uh, uh, while BMW and Peugeot have confirmed a 100 million euro joint venture to develop electric technologies. They've been developing electric technology since about the 50s or 60s. They have no intention. If you notice, everything else has leapt ahead in leaps and bounds, but you're still using gasoline, uh, petrol. Like they, they couldn't, no, it was never intended that they have anything for the, else for the public because they didn't intend to have you driving forever. He says, however, Mr. Booth said electric vehicles at the moment are still very expensive and have limitations. There's a question mark about how long governments can subsidize vehicles when they're under so much pressure from other funding issues. Some of the sales projections for electric vehicles are very ambitious because I'm not sure how customers are going to be able to afford to pay for them. 
Our philosophy is that we have a suite of technologies from continuing to improve conventional vehicles right through to plug-ins, hybrids, and electric vehicles. The customer is going to decide that we want to satisfy all the customers, not just the rich ones. Well, it'll depend on your electric bill, and they keep jacking all that up all the time. It all works together in concert, doesn't it, at the same time? So because energy and carbon taxes and, and energy taxes are all coming into it at the same time. But that's just coincidence, isn't it? But you won't need it, you see, in your lovely little community area. And um, you won't have to walk very far to local transportation. And you won't travel far because you won't be allowed outside your perimeter with a little ID card, just like the old Soviet Union. Now, there's, there's Carlton on the telephone uh, from New York. We'll see if he's there. You're there, Carlton. Okay. And, okay, uh, put Andrea on Hello, Hello, Alan. Yes. Hi. Um, I was just uh, wondering, I, I looked at the, that video uh, that you had the link to on human resources and social engineering. Yeah. And uh, at one point, uh, Noam Chomsky uh, was on, and he was um, saying that so, uh, the Bolsheviks had really perverted socialism. They had subverted it. Mm-hmm. And that it was really quite different um, had been originally. What I was wondering what you think of that and what you think of Noam Chomsky. Uh, he's a bit of an enigma, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think he's one of the authorized ones to be out there uh, doing what he does at that level and with that kind of following. Uh, socialism, um, it, it, it can always only be perverted because it's a perverted system to begin with. Um, the book Ponerology, for instance, political Ponerology, talks about uh, psychopathic personalities who always go into power in any system. And it was actually written uh, within the Soviet Union by psychologists and different people who um, had to be very secretive about their findings and their, their conversations with each other. Uh, but they found, they were comparing their own leaders and their system with that of the West, and they found no difference at all in the personality types who were running uh, bureaucracies on one side and bureaucracies on the other, and so on and so on. And so it seems to be more uh, advantageous, in a, in a sense, for socialism uh, to allow psychopaths to the top. Um, I, th- I think it's more of an open-door policy for them to come up to the top, um, Socialism is about control. It's an atheistic system, too, which really has elevated science up to the top. And science, like Bertrand Russell said, he was all for it, scientific dictatorships. He said it would be a terrifically authoritarian system that socialism would bring in. Well, pretending to be benevolent, is that it? Uh, no, you see, this, this lie of... In, in the big elite circles that have always been around, and even in their Masonic circles, they talk about themselves being benevolent dictators. And there's no such thing as a benevolent dictator. It never has been in history, except in fairy tales. Um, power is power to these characters. And um, although they try to get the public to be as fearful as possible, to comply with everything, that's what they call a peaceful society, um, they're not benevolent by any standards whatsoever in the history books. When you go into the history books, uh, there's never been a case of the benevolent dictatorship. It belongs truly in Disneyland. 
Um, so I don't think you can get it that way. Um, remember, too, psychopaths uh, will smell the wind uh, and to see which way the political wind or the social wind is moving for the public, and they'll join any side which they see uh, they think is going to win. In Britain, it's even better. You have um, politicians who cross the floor, it's called, in Parliament, when they see that the, other, the, opposi- the, the opposition or whatever is going to be more popular than the one that the party they're in, they simply walk across and join another party right on the spot. So psychopaths have no qualms about eth- ethical standards or moral standards or whatever else. Uh, they'll go to where the winners are. I have a question and, about, oh, excuse me, about Gandhi. Yeah. Uh, somebody told me that um, when um, in the... Uh, Indian movement for independence that all the while uh, there was this, you know, the, uh, the, the group, the invisible group behind everything uh, um, sort of determining the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, would, would you say that's true? Um, be, you know, so that it only appears to be, appeared to be independence. Uh. Yes, in fact, if you go into the writings of uh, Professor Carl Quigley, who was a historian for the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And going even to the histories back to the Milner Group that coined the, the term that the Commonwealth of Nations for the British Empire. It sounded better. Uh, they said that in their own writings that uh, they would create a system wherever they, they went into another country. They'd create a system and then they would institutionalize that system to try and copy uh, what appeared to be the British system, they train a whole generation of bureaucrats and so on and give them extra perks and all the rest of it so that when, when they withdrew from that country, they would leave really the same kind of system in place and it would still be part of the Commonwealth of Nations, which, which India is. Did yeah. Gandhi knew it, that? Gandhi knew that. Gandhi went to Oxford, remember, and, and he mixed with these guys. I was reading a, a book by Will Durant that said that he was very influenced by the Fabian Socialists and by yes. uh, mm-hmm. Russell, um, yeah. John, John Russell. Yes, uh, and, and he was definitely uh, into Fabian Socialism. And Gandhi himself wasn't such a peaceful man as they make out. I mean, Gandhi did, he had, he had two techniques for taking on an enemy. And he said, for those who take it on in a peaceful manner, they must be ready to lay down their lives and be killed for what they believe in on the road to it. He says, but a lot of folk can't do that. He says, those who can't do that must then fight physically and fight with all, with all the worth that they have. Uh, and so he wasn't all just for peace in that way. It, it, the only coward was a person who ran away the other way and didn't go one way or the other. So they either fought physically or you gave up your life as a sacrifice. That's what he admired. But um, he was sent in, I think. He belonged to the society, uh, this higher society from the Milner Group and so on. And um, Britain had been trying, remember, too, to hold on to India for a long time, the, the jewel and the crown, as they called it. And uh, they, they, took this, they first stripped the power from the, the, the local leaders in, in the different parts. India was a lot of small little countries and princedoms. And Britain united it all, through, uh, put 40,000 miles of railroads in there, and, um, and then set up a bureaucracy based on the British system, uh, and the bureaucrats then, for then on, right to the present time, send their children over. They're, they're intergenerational bureaucrats. They send them over to Oxford and Cambridge for their training, and then they go back uh, and rule their country on behalf of this Commonwealth of Nations. 
So Britain really got what it wanted. And, um, and, and we find that's happened in other colonies too that Britain pretends to leave. They never leave it without setting up the same infrastructure that will, will, that will still cling to Britain and the Commonwealth. Right. And I noticed that he was also, I don't know how uh, seriously he was involved in theosophy, but he, was, he got into yeah. that also. Oh, absolutely. He was right into theosophy. And remember, too, with the Fabian Society, one of the founding members, too, was, it was, um, it was Annie Besant. And she was a good friend of Gandhi as well. And she, her, her job was to bring out the feminist movements, the early feminist movements, and she was heavily funded by the Astor family to do so. Right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for calling. Okay, bye. And also remember, too, another interesting part of that is that Will Durant, who um, wrote a, a series of very good history books uh, with a massive team, obviously, um, was also paid to do so by the Rockefeller Foundation. And he was meant to slant history in such a way as to make you think that people in society are simply too... Uh, and too much conflict, you need a, a strong authoritarian central power to control everyone. That was a slant he had to write on everything uh, to do with history. Down, In other words, uh, a tyrant would arise once in a while and cause tremendous trouble, and and, and then it had to be suppressed. Then another one would, would arise. So he's always working towards this utopic future. But Will Durant and his wife both were found in a hotel room at the end of it all. After they'd written to Stalin, Churchill, and a whole bunch of world leaders, and they said that um, uh, they, they felt they'd betrayed the, the public. They couldn't leave the public with this feeling of, of nihilation, basically, uh, nihilistic um, feeling that there was no hope because that was the intent of their history, history being written with that kind of slant, that without scientific guidance and scientific um, leadership, we, we would uh, continue in the same way as the past, and it was just mayhem order out of chaos, basically. Well, they were found dead in their hotel room after they sent all those letters out, and that's actually been put into some of the later editions of their books. They show you the letters that, that uh, they wrote to all the top leaders of the world. But they were used by the Rockefeller Foundation. As I say, it's, it's amazing. You, you, you can never take anything at face value, even books which you might like and, and have some good information in them. There's always a spin put in there. And again, that was verified by Churchill, who talked about, um, uh, this, again, the Milner uh, Rhodes, uh, Rollins Youth International Affairs Society, CFR, same group, <laughs> all one group, um, that um, had been writing the British school children's uh, books and the university-level books and for, for the histories for the world. And meanwhile, these guys had been the main powers and movers and shakers between causing the wars for the world. It's, it's quite amazing. So they, were, they always kept themselves out of the books, but they made sure that everyone got the, the, the right kind of education and belief system on how the world operated to their advantage, of course. Uh, everything's like that. It's astonishing, astonishing what goes on. And Gandhi, too, was such a great guy that when he was locked up in a, in a, by the British in a cell, he developed pneumonia, and eventually he succumbed to the temptation to accept antibiotics but his wife, who was in another cell, got pneumonia, and he, he told her not to take them. So I guess she was disposable. So they give us our heroes. And, um, and again, people like power. You know, people do like power. You can have power and money and, or power alone and, and adulation. So some go for that as well. 
It's just amazing how the world is managed. It's all for the public show so that we believe in what's being said to us and we go along with it. But I always, I always think of the American founding fathers and one of them said that um, getting back to those articles on a good citizen is a fearful citizen, otherwise you're a psychopath apparently. Um, that's, the government should live in fear of the people. Because when people live in fear of their government, there's something terribly, terribly wrong, you see. And that's true enough. That's how it's been because since Darwin, as I say, everything has been brought into this scientific, socialistic way of, of uh, running the world all by bureaucrats, paperwork, etc. The whole bureaucratese language that all governments use was invented by Sidney and Beatrice Webb, also founders of the Fabian Society. And everything would end up in quotas and rations and so on and functions for people. And then the other founder of the Fabian Society, uh, George Bernard Shaw, I put the videos up there for you to see where he said, you'll have to come to us to justify why we should keep you alive. You'd have to work in the socialist system. They had no time for the infirm, the weak, and, and or crippled people. Uh, and they would simply eliminate them. He even called for the, the, the scientists creating a gas uh, a humane gas, he called it, to kill off all of those people who would be of no financial value, economic value to society. Socialism is Marxism, and you can't separate the two. It's all to do with material resources. It's the same thing as on the go today uh, when you hear about sustainability uh, and the, the, the climate nonsense. It's really all about sustainability. It's eugenics. It's socialism. How many should live? How many should die? And etc. etc. That's what it's all about, the plan society. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, and I think Carlton from New York is, is back again. Are you there, Carlton? Hey, Mr. White, how you doing? How you doing? Not too bad. Um, uh, you're talking about the police and militarization, and basically the police state is going on, it's developing. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you can see it, just, I can just remember 10 years ago, the cops wouldn't run red lights and throw their horn on like something's going on knowing that they're just getting through the light but to me it just looks like they're showing an authoritarian position like yeah we're the cops we can do what we want you you chill sit at the light and and let us go past yeah but my real question and i'm gonna make try to make it quick and take my ass off the air because my phone is dying but uh speaks on the eugenics part of it because it seems as though they just basically take our natural instincts and basically over-exaggerate and pervert them. So I look at, and I don't know if this is the total truth to it, but like the the conception. Mm -hmm. The one sperm, the strongest one to survive, to get to the egg, impregnates the egg, and boom, you're, you know, you're Mm -hmm. conceived. And it seems as though it's like that's what they look at, and they use that and have perverted it to the extreme, basically, through socialism and all that good stuff. But yeah. um, my basic question is, how true is it? And is it just, is it true and 
just adapted to the form of it or, you know, how true is it? And like I said, I'll take my answer off the phone. Take it easy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the key is the fact that every living species has uh, the, the, the drive to survive. Versus sperm or whatever. It's a, a drive to survive. It's all about survival. Uh, the problem with the elite, of course, is how to control all of those and live very well off the top of all those who have survived. And um, what they're getting at with socialism is how they can design the kinds of, of happy, obedient people that will serve them well for generations to come. That's really what all of this bioethics and neuroscience is all about. It's all about complete control. Uh, bioethics um, and neuroscience. Bioethics is just a new term for eugenicists. It's got, it got a bad rap after Hitler, so they, they, they altered their name. And only recently did the British Eugenical Society change their name. They've still got their sites up there. But um, it's about con- total control uh, over the public. And the biggest enemy they have is that little part of your brain which gives you your, your so-called what they call primitive instincts. These are the instincts that make you survive and do things in survival situations you wouldn't normally do. And that's, you know, even during the so-called famine in Ireland, which was simply a famine brought on by the British government because they looted Ireland of all its cattle and so on and all the food to serve the British Empire, troops all abroad over the empire, and they left the folk to starve. But the Catholic Church even had to um, say it wasn't a sin to steal anymore, to allow the folk to steal to survive. Uh, that's reality of, of survival. We're all capable of doing amazing things and breaking the social indoctrinated norms in a survival situation. And as I say, you can't take these studies they put out there on the general public and say, well, uh, so many of these guys ended up in crime later on. I can take you to any main city, especially the poorer areas, and you'll find that will happen because part of it is learned often. This is how somebody before them survived. And when you have to survive, you will break laws to survive. Now, there are so many laws out there, but to, the, to those at the top, they don't want that. They want obedient people who will pay and actually eventually work for nothing for the world state. That's the key. They want you to work for nothing to the, for the world state without having to police you or have a military there or hangmen there or anybody else to terrify you. They want a peaceful, happy, maybe fearful society to an extent. But that's the goal of uh, neuroscience and neuroethics, etc. But thanks for calling. And uh, from Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.